Now today uh, we're going to move uh, on deeper into Proverbs chapter 19. Uh, so far uh, from last week and the time that we have spent in it, we've not gotten very far in it, but uh, we have looked at four really important uh, teachings that are found in this great chapter. This is one of these chapters that you don't want to hurry through. It's one of these chapters that you want to take your time and you want to squeeze everything out that you can because there's so much in it. The first time we looked at it, we really focused on the word integrity, didn't we? And how vital that is and uh, the word integrity, what it means and uh, how it really uh, just uh, is the key word uh, for the Christian in our walk with God and our dealing with others. Then we saw uh, last week the, uh, the aspect of, of getting hasty in what we do making choices, making decisions without all of the facts or just getting in a hurry and how it leads us into trouble. The, the aspect of really waiting on God and just letting God show you uh, when to move and what to do. Then we looked at adding some things to your faith. And I told you how that uh, all your Christian life is you basically are adding some stuff. And one of the greatest things that I gave you, it's helped me over many, many, many years. And it not only is good for your own self, but it helps you figure things out. Because many times in Christianity, things happen, things go south, things go sideways, and you're standing there scratching your head, why in the world did this happen, or how does this happen? And, you know, there's never, there's never a complicated answer when it comes to anything in Christianity. And I think the greatest single asset about my own life and and dealing with people and people in general and in relationship with God uh, is simply what I gave you last week that, you know, that uh, God wants you to add some things to your faith. And when you begin to add some things to your faith and the next thing God does, he takes the things that you add and he multiplies it into your life. Now you take the devil on the other hand and what he does is he wants to subtract things from your life. And as he subtracts things from your life, then he gets you to the point where, where God adds and multiplies, the devil subtracts and then he divides. He takes you away from everything that God wants for you by subtracting it, and then in, at the end result, dividing, dividing you out of it. And, you know, that's such a fundamental aspect. I would simply say that as long as you continue to add to your faith, and you're doing those things and adding all those things that you need to add, you're going to be okay. When you start subtracting things or letting things go out of your life that you know that are your vital things, then you're going to wind up getting divided out. And then we looked at the concept of being patient. And I gave you five uh, key areas that really is the foundational um, support for patience in our life. Having the structure in our life. Uh, self-discipline in our life, hard work that it takes to, to do things with the Bible, a visible plan that you, you really know uh, where you're trying to get and what you're trying to do, and then a purpose in life, knowing why you want to get uh, to where you go and how you're going to get there. I think of all of those things in our lives, probably self-discipline is the most vital aspect that we could ever have in our lives. And, you know, today in the Christianity, the way it is and the way people are, Self-discipline is really a rare commodity today. Um, most of you guys, many of you guys have been in the military, and um, you certainly see it with the guys that are in the few on Wednesday night when we have it. But uh, the, uh, the core uh, concept is, and, and always has been, a, a strict code of discipline. Uh, you know, and, and for the individual soldier who is a real soldier, who is going to be a soldier and wants to be one, it is self-discipline. You have to discipline yourself to some things. You can't just do whatever you want to do. There is a chain of command that you have to follow. 
And uh, the military, you know, much like Christianity, uh, will have the same basic structure. And that's because, fundamentally, uh, Christianity is a warfare. And we're, we're an army. And uh, we're to train that way. We're to fight that way. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6 that, you know, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We're not going to go up against Iraq or Russia or any of those guys, but we're going to go up against the spiritual battles of life. And in truth of the matter, the spiritual battles of life are much more important than the physical battles of life. A hundred million years from now, the physical battles of who, who in World War I or World War II or the Civil War or the French and Indian War won't matter. But the spiritual battles that are won and lost will count for all of eternity. You know, and without a doubt, um, in the military, uh, as Christianity, the success or failure will be uh, the leadership structure. People who are disciplined in themselves to, uh, to that aspect and, and rise as leaders. I found in dealing with people over the years there, that there's two kinds of leaders. And uh, they're all, one of them is, they're both really great, but the one is exceptional. And you'll find people who are, are good leaders, that they'll lead people, and that they, they lead well, and they're, they're great in all that they do. They've disciplined themselves, they've structured themselves, and they're great leaders. And then you find people who, in my estimation, are leaders of leaders. In other words, they set the standard for, for leaders. And they're not, they don't come along very often. I mean, leadership is great, and I love that when God gives takes you guys and develops you into leaders. But some of you, he takes a little step further. And it's the fact that you're not only a leader of men, but you're a women, but you're leaders of leaders. You set the example. People look to you. Uh, they look to your leadership. They want to follow your leadership. And uh, some of you, you know, uh, there was a time when, when my phone would ring off the hook because people would call and ask me Bible questions and I, about this, about that. And I still get quite a few but I don't get as many as I used to. You know why? Because they call you now, some of you. And, uh, you know, the average pastor would get his feelings hurt about that. And uh, to me, I think it's the greatest asset that, that I could ever have is that you're out there. Uh, some of you are out there being leaders of leaders. And uh, you, when you give the answer, I'm fully sure. I've heard enough of you uh, do the answers to know that you're right on the money with what you give them. I guess in a good way or a bad way, I guess I've rubbed off on you one way or the other. I don't know how good that is or bad that is, but you, uh, you, do, you do very well with what you do. And, you know, you think that this would be true. Most people who don't really understand the military mindset, you would think that the real core value of leadership in the military would be the officers. But you know that's really not true. If you've been in the military at all, you know that the real core value of success will not be at the officer level, but rather the NCO level, uh, the, the non-commissioned officers, the sergeants. Uh, they're in any army. I don't care if it's the, our army, the Russian army, or the Chilean army, or the Romanian army. The meat on the bones of any army will always be <coughs> the, the, uh, the NCOs, the sergeants, <coughs> the ones who uh, are always there and always doing everything they do. Their, their, their expertise, their, expert, their expertise and their experts, at, and because they've been a vet for so many years, and they're what really holds it all together. The whole military concept is built around that structure. You know, the youngest sergeant or the least of the sergeants is what they call a buck sergeant, and that's, you see it all the time. He just got three stripes on, nothing underneath, just three stripes. He's called an E5. 
and you know your your buck sergeants they'll they'll be in charge in a in a military scenario they'll be in charge of a squad and that's probably 18 men or so depending on how they do it and then up from that within the structure uh, you'll have eight or nine ten or twelve squads uh, within a platoon and that platoon will be run by somebody that's an E6 or an E7. That means he's going to have three stripes up and either one underneath or two underneath. They call them rockers. <clears throat> and he'll have a platoon uh, of 100 guys, you know, and then he'll have the E6s, uh, the E5s underneath of him. And they'll all work together. They'll all, and then, you know, you'll have <clears throat> on, on, on a company level, and a company is made up of four platoons. So in a company level, you'll have what they call a first sergeant. Now, he'll be an E-8, and, uh, uh, you know, or uh, in the Marine Corps, they're called a gunner, gunny sergeant, gunneries, uh, but they're called top sergeants in the Army. But he'll be, uh, you know, he'll be, a, he'll be an E-8, and he'll be, over the, he'll be over the whole company. And then as you go up through the structure, you have, here's what you have. You have a number of squads that make up a platoon. You have four platoons that make up a company. And you have five or six companies that make up a battalion level. And that's how the structure goes. At the battalion level, you'll have a sergeant major. And he'll be over everything. Uh, all the other sergeants are under him. And it's a structure where, you know, where, uh, you know a division commander, uh, who's a, probably a light colonel or maybe a, a, a colonel, uh, you know, even a brigade, battalion commander, uh, he never sees the battlefield. Uh, most, uh, most of those officers, they, they never have any contact with the men. Even a company commander, he may be on a battlefield, but he doesn't personally get involved with the men. He doesn't personally get involved in their daily lives. He may know who they are. That's why they all have name tags, <clears throat> so he can, he can he know who they are. But the officers basically sit at the top, <clears throat> and they get their orders from, from headquarters, and uh, they never really know the men. They never get on their level. But the NCOs, on the other hand, they're, they're the backbone of it all. Uh, they get the job done. <clears throat> and as I said many times, you're going to find where Christianity is an army. And uh, it would be easy to say that the uh, Christianity is, is, is like the army, but it's more proper to say that the army is like Christianity. Because Christianity was around in God's mind long before any army ever showed up. And you know, we, have, we, we sing the songs in our hymnals. This is why we have the old hymns of the faith. Onward, Christian soldiers, sound the battle cry. Am I a soldier of the cross, you know? And we're told, Timothy was told to do her hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, that, that, uh, uh, that he was called to be a soldier. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the captain of our salvation. He's the officer. <clears throat> I don't look at myself, if I'm going to put this in a scenario uh, that is likely to the military, I don't look at myself as an officer. I look at myself as, a, as an NCO with the other NCOs that are the core of this church. In Ephesians chapter 6, it talks about putting the whole uh, armor of God. And I always looked at that because I always asked myself, why did Paul use that analogy? Because the analogy that he comes down through is the analogy of a first century Roman soldier, which was in occupation in Paul's day. Rome was running the world militarily. Greatest military uh, army in the world. Up at Fort Leavenworth, they have a command college where they teach and bring all these guys in from all these other nations, uh, uh, majors and up, 
and they teach them combat command there at Fort Leavenworth. They have a, a, a very fantastic program. Do you realize that they still study, ta- and what they do is they study tactics. They teach these guys the tactics that have in the past that have been, that have been uh, uh, you know, successful. And then these guys use these things in different scenarios. You realize that they still teach the tactics of the first Roman legions back in Christ's day, their battle tactics. They still teach them uh, that at Fort Leavenworth uh, because of the value of, of how great they were as a military force. Most people don't even know that. You'd think we would talk about modern stuff. And they do. <clears throat> but I'm telling you. And I always thought, Paul's sitting there writing the book of Ephesians, talking about the armor of God and the warfare of the believer. And he's surrounded by first century Roman soldiers. And he knows that Rome has conquered the world. And I know what he's thinking. <clears throat> he's saying to himself, if I could get God's people to be a self-disciplined and dedicated for the cause of Christ as the Roman soldiers are to the cause of Rome we'd win the world to Christ. But he puts it in a spiritual application. He says, they wrestle against flesh and blood, but we don't. Our warfare is a spiritual warfare. But we have to endure a hardness. We have to have the same character qualities. And you know, and in Christianity, uh, it will never be the pastor that holds it all together. And this is a fatal flaw that pastors make. I've been around pastors all my life and and seen churches all my life. And pastors believe that they get the illusion that they're the one that holds it all together. That's the fatal flaw that pastors make. They think that they're the one who holds it all together. They may be the one that gets the vision from God, and they may be the one who who, uh, starts uh, the church and gets everything going and be the one that God uses Uh, But uh, it will never be the pastor that holds it all together. It will be the midline people like you who grasp the vision, who understand the calling, who self-discipline yourself to the point where you you are structured in everything that you do. And then you take the vision of the church and just like the NCOs of any military of any armies... You, you take it down on the levels and you, you give everybody what they need. And you are the ones who hold it all together. No church is built around one man. I don't care how good he is. You know, and in Christianity, like I said, it'll never be the pastor that holds it all together. He may stand at the top and he may take all the flock and he may, at the judgment seat of Christ, give an account for it all. But it'll be the mid-level NCOs. The, the men and the women who have been trained and know uh, the Word of God and can carry out the mission because they know how it works. Those kind of people are invaluable. Most churches never get to that level because the pastor never sees it. He goes through his whole ministry under the delusion that it all has to be about him. He thinks that delegating things is okay as long as it's clean the toilets or do this or do that. For him to delegate ministerial things that are on his level would be uh, terrifying to him because most of them are so insecure that they're afraid that you're going to do a better job. On my behalf, I expect you to do a better job. I expect you to be better with the Bible than I am. I expect you to be better with the people you work with than I am. And many of you are. But you need to understand clearly and what we do here I mean, the pastor may get God's vision, but you are the core who have to carry it out. And it works together. We get our orders from the Word of God. We get our vision that God gives us. I lay it out to you. And 
just like any military company, you midline NCOs, you guys and gals who, who understand what we're doing, who have the vision of what we're doing, you take it. You hold it all together. What pastor can be everywhere at once and solve every problem? Nobody. He has, just like nobody in a military can do it, he has to have a cadre of men and women who understand the fundamentals, who are self-disciplined, who understand what we're trying to do, and then they take the same vision and they all work together to accomplish what needs to be done. You know, I, le- I, I love to read a lot of books on history. And I love, <clears throat> I, I, I think my love for military history stems from the fact that I have learned so much about Christianity by studying great military campaigns. <clears throat> I have books that lay out the, the 10 greatest military campaigns in history. And I love to read them. But I also have a book that talks about the 10 or the 20 worst military disasters in history. And they're valuable to read too. I read the great biographies of great generals. Most of them are unsaved. But there's something about that mindset that you can translate into Christianity that got those guys through when nothing else would get them through. And in Christianity, there's going to be some times that you have to go through things that the average Christian will not be able to get through. And sometimes the only thing that will get you through it is your self-discipline and your stamina not to quit and stay with it all the way down through there. You know, most of you young kids... The older people probably know this, but in 1944, uh, we were in World War II. And uh, we got in World War II in 1941. And uh, Germany had an impenetrable, impenetrable uh, fortress. They called it Fortress Europe. And we knew to defeat the Nazis that we were going to have to invade the continent of Europe. And we started in Africa, had some success there, moved up into Italy and Palermo and uh, 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 in Sicily, uh, but that really wasn't the European continent per se. Now, we had to land on the European continent at some point, and on June the 6th, 1944, which is commonly known D-Day, we landed on uh, the continent of Europe in France. And uh, if you've seen Save It Private Ryan or the Band of Brothers or any of that, you, uh, there's a lot of movies out about it, a lot of history on it. Uh, most people today uh, don't even understand the uh, the incredible um, price that was paid on that Normandy invasion on D-Day. It was incredible to just to get a foothold on Europe. Once we got our foothold in Europe, the war only went on for another year. And uh, it uh, it it we, once we got in there and we just flooded the place with our troops, Germany collapsed pretty much. But they had done a lot to keep us out. They knew we were coming. And uh, uh, the Normandy area was uh, uh, a lot of uh, uh, hedge groves, that hedge groves that were like maybe 20, 30 feet high, big shrubbery hedges. Uh, they were like uh, a, a patchwork. Uh, and they had been there for hundreds of years. They were used centuries ago to lay off boundaries, but they grew, and now they're 30 feet tall and 40 feet wide, and they're almost, uh, every, every field is lined with hedgerows. It was an impossible task to try to get through. There were causeways that came from the beach that went inland that, uh, uh, that the Germans could put down reinforcements on. Uh, there were select cities like Caratan, which uh, was, a, was a vital thing that had to be, had to be taken. 
And if without those things being taken, the Normandy invasion would have been a would have been a disaster. And the night before that, they hit uh, Omaha Beach, Utah Beach, Sword and Gold Beach. Two airborne divisions, about ten, fifteen thousand men, jumped that night way behind the lines of Normandy Beach. It was the 101st Airborne. It was the 82nd Airborne. <clears throat> fifteen thousand men. Each of them had a specific goal that they had to do. The 82nd was going to uh, secure the causeways that they couldn't get reinforcements down. The 101st was to take the city of Caratan. They all had objectives that they had trained for and planned for for months before the invasion took place. Well, like anything in warfare, the moment the ramp goes down or the moment the green light goes on and you're out the door, it all falls apart. And uh, they had specific drop zones that they were to be dropped in. There wasn't one airborne division that made the drop zones. Some of them were dropped 30 miles from the drop zones. Some of them were dropped, uh, uh, the Germans had, had opened up the dikes and filled up the swamps uh, or the dry land uh, between the hedge groves and made three feet of water with just the cosros. Many paratroopers, hundreds of them, uh, drowned in their heavy equipment in two or three feet of water. Uh, it, it could have been a disaster. If the 101st and the 82nd Airborne would not have gotten their, their, their missions done, uh, the evasion would have been a farce. It would have been a total disaster. We'd have never got a foothold on Europe. And they were scattered everywhere. Many of their officers could not find their groups. There was 82nd guys with 101st guys, 101st guys with 82nd. Nobody could find anybody. When they come over to Fortress Europe, I mean, the flak was so bad, and, the, and the, those C-47s were supposed to slow down to about 80 miles an hour so the guys could get out. But because they were being shot at from the ground and it looked like turkeys, they were pushed their engines ahead and they were traveling 120 miles an hour when those boys went out of those planes. It ripped their equipment off. It ripped their helmets off. The Many of them lost their weapons. And they were in such a hurry to get out of there that they turned on the green lights long before they hit the drop zone. Some of them turned on their green lights when they were over the English Channel and the boys parachuted and died into the, in the channel. Needless to say that they were scattered everywhere. And there was no organization, no officers, nobody to pull them together. But the 82nd and 101st that night accomplished every goal that they had. They took Caratan the next day. They secured the, both causeways, and they held the Germans from ever getting reinforcements back. And it stands as a marvel today to the testimony of those elite troops, because even though they did not have their officers, even though they did not have their command of chain of command had been broken, and they were scattered all over the place, and there were 82nd and 101st guys together, and vice versa, they had the self-discipline to understand what their mission was. And what they did was, is wherever they found pockets of their men, they organized, they knew what their objective was, and without the officers to lead them, they led themselves, they picked up more guys. It didn't matter if they were 82nd or 101st. They knew what they had to do. And the 101st took Caratan the next day. The 82nd and the 101st took those causeways, held those causeways, and the Normandy invasion was a success. All because of self-discipline. All because of men who understood that they had a job to do and the way outcome of the war depended on that. They had been trained better than anybody else. 
They looked at themselves as an elite status, uh, being better than just ground troops. They put their lives in danger more and more than anybody else, jumping in the middle of the night uh, behind enemy lines. Many of them were shot down. One group, the 505th 82nd Airborne Division, uh, got missed their drop zone, and the pilot saw, uh, and actually, there were guys called Pathfinders who had dropped in four or five hours before them, Four or five guys in the middle of enemy territory who were supposed to light the drop zone so they could find them. The 505th of the 82nd Airborne, the pilot saw lights up ahead and thought it was, and he dumped out this whole load of about 300 men of the 505th under the little town of St. Marigliese. That was a German strong point. And those Germans literally shot those boys down in their parachutes. You can still see books and stories of, of a guy, uh, his name was Roger Steele, who his parachute caught on the steeple of the church, and he hung there while he watched all of his buddies. He played like he was dead, but they shot him down in their parachutes. Lost all of those guys, missed the drop zone. But it was their elite status that they knew who they were. It was the elite status that they knew what they had to do. It was the fact that they knew their mission, and the fact that they did not have the officers there to tell them they had the NCOs. And the NCO saved the day. And in any church, in any ministry, whatever we do, what will hold it all together, what will keep it all together, will be the midline core men and women of this church who understand the mission, who understand the who do not get sidetracked with all the goofy stuff that's out there in the world and in Christianity. And your job and your focus is to accomplish the mission. And it's one of the greatest stories. One of the greatest are self-discipline and self-motivation are key in Christianity. And uh, you see what needs to be done. There's no one there to tell you what needs to be done. And you get it done. NCOs, they train. They educate. They rebuke. They admonish. They warn. They're hands-on with somebody trying to help them. They encourage. And they develop the new recruit into leaders. And many of them not only become leaders, they become leaders of leaders. Now that has been the structure here, the way that we build people. And I've made no apology for it. I told you last week that we build people, we don't mass produce people, we build them one person at a time. And uh, the core of cadre who have the ability to lead and to teach and to build. Most, Most churches make a fatal mistake. And I've seen it all my life. This is why they have so many problems. They want to grow numerically. But I've learned over the years that growing numerically is a bad thing if your base of core people are not growing out to support your vertical ascent. And of course, uh, you know, most of them uh, have a very small base of people. They try to build a very large church which goes up and then it becomes top heavy and you have no base to support it. A church can only grow upward as its base grows laterally outward and that base will be the NCOs it'll be the core people who understand what we're doing who buy into what we're doing and who are part of what we're doing and uh, somebody said one time there are people who uh, in every church there's three kinds of people those people who who make things happen there's people who know what's happening and there's the people who don't have a clue what's happening and that is so true And so we see that great example coming through there. Now today, I want to look at verse 3. 
And I want to talk about uh, another great verse here. It says, The foolishness of man perverteth his way, and his heart fretteth against the Lord. Now, the Bible says, The foolishness of a man perverteth his way. Now, this is one of the best clear-cut, understandable verses that will ever show you why things are the way they are in people's lives today, God's people. And, uh, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's like last week, uh, that great verse on uh, being hasty in what we do and how it always causes trouble. Great practical material. And I want to look at the first four words here for just a moment. But before we do that, uh, Delano, would you ask God's blessing on the service this morning for me right there? Thank you. Good job. Good job. The foolishness of man. What a great thing that is to study in the Bible. Now, I know that all of us are foolish sometimes. I know I certainly am. But let me show you what the Bible says about our foolishness. The concept of the foolishness of man. First of all, you know, when Paul was dealing over there in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verses 6 through 11 with the church of Corinth, there's a church that was trying to build itself on worldly wisdom. And P- Paul told them over there in, uh, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 6, he says, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory. He says, you know what, you guys or have a church, but you're operating under a worldly wisdom. You're not building it onto the Bible. You're building it on man's concepts and everything that he's trying to do. And he says, what you need to get is verse seven is the hidden hidden wisdom that's in the Bible. What we reveal to you through the Holy Spirit of God. You know, I I watched Christianity from uh, about 1970. And it's so true about every, about every four or five years, maybe every 10 years, some guy out there comes up with a different way to, to, uh, to build a church. And pastors today are so uh, unbelievably inept when it comes to understanding how to build a church. They look for any new thing that will give success to them. We had an evangelist one time that, uh, uh, that was going around and, uh, he would, uh, and he would talk about the fact that wherever he went, that he would have six, seven hundred people saved. And uh, he was so popular that he got to the point where uh, he wouldn't go preach any place that couldn't guarantee him a thousand people to show up because he was too valuable to waste his time on anything less than a thousand people. And uh, pastors were standing in line to get him. You know why? Because he was a new gimmick. He had a sermon and a message that brought a lot of people in. 
I remember one time, uh, I remember one time he spoke at a church that I was with, and, uh, and I, he got up that night in the pulpit, and he told, talked about the fact that uh, he had just come from a church in Cleveland, Ohio, and they had 600 people saved. And everybody, everybody in the church went crazy. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm glad 600 people got saved, but you know, uh, I'm a little more into it than that. So I called that church uh, that next week. And I said, I hear you had so-and-so there. He was at our church this week. And uh, I heard you had a great revival. And he, she said, yeah, I heard you had 600 people saved in, the, in that week, a long revival. She said, absolutely. It was the most fantastic thing that we ever had seen. And I said, good. I, that's really good. I said, let me ask you a question. This last Sunday, how many of them got baptized? They really must have had a long baptism service. You know, none of them got baptized. No, I'm glad 600 people get saved, but you know what? Churches sometimes get so interested in getting them saved, they don't carry them through the rest of the way. Now, I know that baptism doesn't save you. I understand that. But I am going to tell you this. In every New Testament church, when a person got saved in the book of Acts, he, he joined the New Testament church, and he got baptized. Baptized may not save you, but it's a vital part of your Christian life, of, of the first steps of, of your public identification. I mean, I would think if you had 600 true conversions, at least one or two would want to get baptized. But every four or five, maybe ten years, back in the 60s and the 70s, it was they taught, taught guys this. They said, if you want to build a church, here's what you do. Start a Christian school. Because the public schools are so bad that, uh, you know, the parents just don't want to put their kids in it. And if you start a Christian school, they're going to think their kids are going to get everything that's going to be good and it's going to be wonderful. <clears throat> and he says, you'll have them flocking to your school. Now, the next thing is do, you charge them a tuition. And then... When they, if they join your church, then you give them a break on the tuition. Then it's a surefire way to start to build a church. You realize that almost every church in this country, little churches, like this our size, were, 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 having, were coming up with schools, Christian schools. They were the worst thing you ever saw in your life. I mean, they were some of the people were unqualified to taunt them, and it did care nothing about the kids. It was a gimmick. That was taught to young pastors that if you want to build a church, start a Christian school, and then they'll flock in, and then you get everybody to come to your church, and that's how you build it. You realize that those schools are all gone today? There was one over here in Independence that lasted, it's been gone now for years. They used to have me come over and speak gospel in the star stuff. In their early years, it was, it was, uh, it was a thing where they, uh, they were a Christian school and, and they had kids there. And as the time went on and they couldn't pay the bills, you know what they did? They decided that Mormons and Seventh-day Adventists were just as good and Christian as other people. So they started to let them come to the Christian school. See what you got to do? In the 90s, it was get a gigantic music program. Get a choir. Have them sing cantatis. Do all kinds of great things. Have all kinds of great pageants and plays. Uh, in the 2000s, it was okay. So what we're going to do now is we're going to have three church services. And we're going to have one church service that's going to be traditional. That'll be in the morning. That'll be for the old folks. Then we're going to have one that's contemporary. We'll have that at 11 o'clock. That'll be for you. Mod and then we'll have a modern one at, 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 at 1 o'clock. And that's where we'll let it all hang out. See? In other words, that's how you build a church. Give people what they want. I'm going to tell you something. You can write this down if you'd like. And when it comes to building a church, you never give people what they want. If I gave you what you'd want, we'd have dancing girls up here today. There'd be a different use for these poles.
if I gave you what you wanted. You never give God's people in any church what they want. You give them what they need. And we've lost that. We've lost that whole concept today. And it's because of the fact that we want to build a church. See, I'm not interested in building a church per se, though I am building one. I'm interested in preaching the truth. If you preach the truth, the church will build itself. And it may not build as fast as other people think it needs to be built, but I never cared how fast it got built. I don't care how fast the thing is or how big the thing is. What I look at is, what's the NCO base like? That's the key. That's the key. And it's a, it's a thing where, you know, they, and today, now, it's a, it's the, uh, it's a thing where it's a, you build a beautiful big church with all of the anemones in it, you know, and all of the, uh, the health spas and the restaurants and everything, and people will come to that church. I remember back in, in my days that they were great rivalries between churches within this city. Uh, the, the, who was bigger and better, <clears throat> and more people were going because it was spacious and because of this. I've seen them build great things and great edifices and great churches and all that people, and, and they think that that's, uh, that's going to bring more people in. And of course, as old Mel Sabaka said years ago, just because you get a crowd doesn't mean you have a church. David is a great picture of us in so many ways. And he was never under any illusion that there was times in his life that he was a fool. And there's never any illusion in my life that there isn't times that I'm a fool. There isn't any illusion in my life that there's times that you're not a fool too. But he said in Psalms 38, O Lord, rebuke me not in thy wrath, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. For thy arrows stick fast in me, and thy hand presses me sore. There is no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger, neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin. For mine iniquities are gone over my head as heavy burdens, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and are corrupt because of my foolishness. See that? Foolishness will cause you all kinds of issues. Number one, verses one and two, God's upset with him. Number three, verse three, there's no soundness in his flesh. There's no rest in his bones. Verse four, his iniquity is over his head like a heavy burden. Uh, his wounds stink and are corrupt all because of his foolishness. So when you look at it, you're listed out. There's no soundness. There's no rest. There's no peace. The problems are way over his head. He's outnumbered and he seems like he can't ever get his head above water. If that isn't a picture of God's people today, I don't know what is. That's what foolishness will do for you. Then he said in Psalm 69, 5, he also knew that God kept a track of his foolishness. My, my, my. Save me, O God, for the waters are coming to my soul. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am coming to deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary of my crying. My throat is dried. Mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. They are, uh, they are they that hate me without a cause or more than the hairs of mine head, and they would destroy me, bring mine enemies wrongfully or, mighty, uh, and my, or mightily, uh, and, I res- uh, res- and then I restored that which I took not away. O God, thou knowest my foolishness, and my sins are not hid from thee. He understood that God had a record of our foolishness. 
Now, here's a life that it gets overwhelmed with the things from the old life. How many God's people today are absolutely underwater and they can't seem to get anywhere with God or their own Christian life all because of these things right here. Their foolishness has led to them being overwhelmed with the things of life that they hardly can even function. The word foolishness, we've talked about it before, is divine in the book of Proverbs. It's one who despises wisdom, 1-7, who slanders, 10-18, who mocks sin, 14-9, who resists punishment for correction, 17-10, whose eyes are the ends of the earth, 17-24, who meddles in other people's business, 20-3, who keeps returning to this sin over and over and over again, 26-16. And all of it's in his own head and his own mind, 20, 28, 26. And that's a progressive study through the book of Proverbs. Now, foolishness will always indicate something that is worthless in our life. And the essence of non-productivity in its approach in whatever we do. It's vain in its effect on us and always wrong in the sight of God. Proverbs 24, 9 says, the thought of foolishness is sin. And the scorner is in the abomination of men. Now, that's a great verse because it not only says that the thought, the thought of foolishness is sin, but it shows you the end result of your foolishness is you start out as a fool, get away from the word of God. You start out getting into foolishness in the Christian life, and the end is going to be now you're going to be scornful to the things of God. That's how it works. Hold on to that verse. We'll be back there in a minute. Now, verse 3 says that man's foolishness will pervert his way. Now, that's a key word there is the word way. Christianity is a very simple concept. It never amazes me how the people want to make Christianity, their lives, so complicated. They have issues in their life, and they want to make it so complicated. They'll go to their psychiatrist. He only even makes it more complicated. They'll go to their psychiatrist. They'll go to their therapist. They'll go to this. They'll only make it even more complicated. It's not complicated. We always want to make it more complicated than it is so we can live uh, within our fabricated gray areas that we all like to make up. Christianity in its simplest basic form is simply two things. You're either going to go God's way or you're going to go your way. And the end corresponding result is going to be based on simply that. You're either going to go your way and become a fool and get you into all kinds of problems. You're going to go God's ways and get the wisdom. God's way would be based on the principles and the promises and the models and the patterns found in the Bible. Our way will be our forsaking those principles and going our own way and yet proclaiming that, hey, we're still okay. The example of a child of God gets saved and begins to grow and then they get into the Bible and God starts to add some things into their life and then, and then uh, uh, he, if something happens. They fall under another influence. Something happens in their life and uh, with the word of God, and pretty soon now they go into reverse. And where God was adding things, now the devil's subtracting those things. And where God wanted to multiply them and take them on, now the devil is subtracting those things, and in time he divides them out. Just that simple. It's just that simple. We talk about the way. Genesis 24, 27. What a great verse. I being in the way. The Lord led. That isn't you getting in the way of God, and that's you getting in God's way, the way He's going. Psalms 1 1 says, Blessed is the man that walketh not on the counsel of the godly, nor standeth in the way of sinners. 
nor sit at the seat of the scornful. There again, taking counseling from the ungodly will get you walking with, uh, get you walking with uh, the ungodly. And then as the process goes, you'll be in the way of sinners. And the last thing in that thing is simply you're now sitting in the seat of the scornful. Where you once loved the Bible, you loved church, now you're scornful of everything that God did. Why? Got in the wrong way. That's all. Psalms 27 and 11 says, Teach me thy way, O Lord, and lead me in a plain path because of mine enemies. It's a plain path. Not a complicated path. It's a plain path. It's easy to see. We make it complicated because it is too plain. Psalms 36, 4 says, He devises mischief upon his bed. He setteth himself in a way that is not good. You're either going to go your way or God's way. It's just that simple. Psalm 37 says, Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. For they all shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good, so shalt thou dwell in the land and verily shall be fed. Delight thyself uh, in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of the heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust in him also, and he shall bring it to pass. And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as a light, and thy judgment as noonday. Rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because the man, uh, because of the man who bringeth wickedness devices to pass. Now that is the that is the stepping stone of your Christian life. You know what? The key goal in your Christian life today, wherever you want to get to in your life, ought to be able to be rest in the Lord. That ought to be where you want to get. This is showing you the process. First of all, you quit worrying about the world out there because he's greater than they are. The first thing you've got to do is trust in the Lord. That'll be defined for you in Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. That you're leaning on his understanding instead of your own. The second thing you have to do is delight yourself in the things of God. You're delighting yourself in the wrong things. And then the real key before any rest will ever come to your life, you have to get to this third part, and that is in verse 5. You have to commit your way to his way. At some point in your life, if you don't commit your way to his way, there'll never be the rest of God in your life. Because it'll always be your way. It'll always be your way. And along with that, God's way, just to find a little finer for you, God's way will always be about the things that he loves. Our way, this is so simple. God's way will always be about the things that he loves. Our way will always be about the things that we love. And in the Bible, there's seven things that God loves. And in the Bible, there's seven things that God hates. How in the world do we ever get to a Christianity that thinks we can go God's way without ever understanding what he loves and what he hates? Because the truth of the matter is that when you don't find out the seven things that God loves and you start loving the things that you love, I guarantee you they're probably the seven things that he hates. And that verse says, the foolish is the man, perverted his way. Now look at the last part of that verse. Get it all together. The foolish is the man, perverted his way. Here it comes. And his heart fretteth against the Lord. Now let me explain the word fretteth here. Now fret is a word that's used differently in the Bible sometimes. It's used differently today. We don't ever use it the way that it's being used here. Uh, this is not fretting over something, but this is fretting against the Lord. I want to read it very carefully. And the verse here it means to gripe, to complain, to murmur against God and the things of God. And so he's saying here that when you get your way gets perverted, then you start fretting against the Lord. You start complaining. 
You start getting upset with God, the people of God, the things of God. Doesn't go your way, you get, a, you get an attitude about it. And of course, uh, last week, we, uh, uh, we saw the seven things that you're to add to your faith. The end result, when you, do, when you don't do that, is you get blind. You can't see spiritually blind. Uh, you can't see far off, and you, you lose sight of what God is doing. And then when you get to that point, you know what you do? When you get saved, God gives you a box of crayons. When I went to grade school, we all wanted a big box of crayons that had 88 colors in it with a sharpener in the back. You had that and a new pair of jeans, you were in. <laughs> when you get saved, God gives you that big box of 88 color crayons. I got to tell you right now, there are not 88 colors. It's only seven colors. So they come up with 88 to make you think like you got a lot going on. And they're, they're all chartreuse, they're blues, four or five different colors of blues and all that. But you know what? When you got saved, God gave you 88 crayons, all different colors. Oh, what lovely pictures you could do. I remember as a kid coloring, looking at all those colors, my imagination when I wanted to color this. Maybe it was a landscape, maybe it was this, maybe it was a car, maybe it was a person. You know, being able to take all the different colors and just color them all that. That's the way God wants you to go through life. He wants you to have a box of crayons with 88 colors in it that you paint life with the most vivid colors that you could ever paint. When you get your way perverted and you start fronting against the Lord, you take out of that box of 88 crayons a black one. And you color everything in life with that one color. Everything in life is shaded dark gray or black. The things that God does, oh, you lost all the joyous colors. It's all black now. Yeah. It's all dark. That's your favorite color. <laughs> it, it, it's a thing where everything in life, you now you just paint that color. You come over your house and go into your downstairs. It's black walls, black sofa. Turn the lights on. It's a black light. <laughs> Everything in life gets that color. You go through your Christian life with one color that you paint everything in life with. You know why? Because your way is perverted. And you're fretting now against the things of God. Where you haven't had the joy, joy, joy down in your heart. You don't like anything. And you just color everything with that color. And the verse is a classic commentary on human nature. And uh, sorry, here comes the Bible again. Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, do all things without murmuring and in disputings. You and I aren't to murmur about things. Put that on your three by five card. It says, do, do all things without murmuring. I got a Greek lexicon here, and in the Greek, that all things means, you know what it means? All things. When a child of God is in God's way, he has the ability to adapt. He has the ability to be flexible. He has the ability to be, in circumstances, compatible. And he has the ability, through in tough circumstances, to be durable. Because God's way will give him patience, and he'll understand that things in the world don't always revolve around you and me the way we'd like to. And overall, what he sees is, it isn't about him. It's about the cause of Christ. Amen. And when we lose sight of the cause of Christ, 
because we only got the one color crayon and paint everything that affects us because we've lost our way and we start fretting about everything, then you've long since lost the concept of the cause of Christ. You know, in the Bible, there's two great men that illustrate this. One of them was Elisha and the other one, Jonah. You know, Elisha was the greatest prophet of God in the Bible. Uh, in fact, uh, him and Moses are the two great guys the whole Old Testament is built around. Moses was, represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. In Revelation chapter 11, the tribulation period, those are the two guys that come back. He was one of the greatest prophets that Israel ever had. But he goes up against Ahab and Jezebel one time in his life and it's a negative experience and he falls apart. He reacts instead of responds. He forgets his biblical principles. He does the same thing. He gets out of God's way and starts going his way based on his fear. You know where he goes? Runs right into the wilderness. And when he got down in the wilderness, you know what he did? He started complaining about everything in his life. He'd forgot about the 400 prophets of Baal that he made fun of and said put the water on the sacrifice and just made a, made a, made a, made a sham of the whole thing. He forgot all that. He forgot all of the great things that God done in his life. Let me tell you something. When you get out of God's way and you dump your colored crayons and you get a black one, you're going to forget everything that God did for you. Because you're going to be the most important thing in your life. And you're just going to color everything with that one color. How boring that is. Now he starts to murmur and complain. His way is now perverted from God's way. And when you stumble through that great chapter, you find that the, the, God gives you not only the cause and the effect of what happened to him, but then he shows you how he got back. First thing the Bible says that he did, he got ministered to. He recognized that he had a problem and he wanted to get back, so he got ministered to. He had to realize that he had to fix some things. The second thing he did, once he started getting ministered to, it gave him the ability to get a fresh vision of what God was going to do with him. He got back on track. And the third thing he did is he, he started to go to work for God and get involved. In other words, he starts adding some things back into his life that he had subtracted out. It's just that simple. Jonah, what a great study he is. Here's a guy who gets out of God's ways because he wants to go his own way. Here's a great prophet. God said to Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh. I got a city down there that is lost and they want to hear, they want to hear the message of God and you're my prophet. I'm going to send you down there. You go to Nineveh and you know what? Cry against that great wicked city. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. He knew that going to Nineveh could be a death sentence for him because Nineveh was the arch enemy of the nation of Israel. He never stopped and thought that if God sent him there, God probably prepared the way for him to get there. He never thought probably that God's, his, his going down there and being killed was in God's plan of reaching that place. That God probably worked it out. But just like so many of us, you know what Jonah did? He says in his heart, I'm not going to Nineveh, but I'm still going to be a Christian. So I'm going to go down to the shipping place where all the boats are. And Lord, I know you said go to Nineveh, but I read the new NIV this morning and it didn't say, I think a better translation. I'll tell you what, if you want me to go to Nineveh, when I go down there, I'm just going to look for the first ship I see. And the first ship I see is where I'm going to know you want me to go. And he went down there to the boat docks and you know what he found? A ship going to Tarsus. And he said, thank you, Lord. 
Our rationalization of our way over what God directly told him where he wanted to go will never work in your life. Because the Bible says that he went down there and he found a ship going to Tarshish. And then the Bible makes sure it tells you that he paid the fare thereof. And I want to tell you something. When you start to go your way versus God's way, you are going to pick up the tab for it. Then he wound up at a great school that we all have been to many, many times. Whale University. (laughs) Now, the standard teaching on Jonah by most pastors is so silly. I've heard it all my life. Well, let me give you an outline of Jonah so we can share our thoughts on Jonah. In chapter 1 of Jonah, Jonah runs from God. In chapter 2 of Jonah, Jonah runs to God. In chapter 3 of Jonah, Jonah runs with God. Oh, but in chapter 4, Jonah runs ahead of God. Isn't that cute? (laughs) The truth of the matter is, Jonah, the book of Jonah... It's not about what Jonah's doing. The book of Jonah never was about what Jonah was doing. The book of Jonah is about what God was doing and Jonah was refusing to do. So get your little outline, put it in the trash can, and get back to what the book's saying. It wasn't Jonah running from God. It wasn't Jonah running to God. It wasn't Jonah running with God and Jonah running ahead of God. It was God told him to go to Nineveh and he didn't want to go. So he ran and went to Tarshish and he forsook what God wanted him to do. Just like we do. Jonah wanted to go his own way. God wanted him to go his way. And and in this book, there's two great examples of what we all do when we get in that mode of Jonah and get our way perverted. God said to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Right out of the chute, he says, I'm not going to go. So God comes down and deals with him. After he deals with him, Jonah looks at God and says, okay, I'll go. But I I don't like it. There's no joy in Jonah's life. And that's the missing element in God's people's lives today. Now let me show you the difference in a few things here of his way versus God's way. The way he looked at it, the way God looked at it. The way we look at it, and the way God looks at it. He sees Nineveh as his enemy, and he hates them. That's his way. God sees Nineveh without the truth of God. That's God's way. He sees only his own comfort level. That's his way. God sees a nation without any hope in God. That's God's way. He can't see beyond his own selfish needs. That's his way. God saw the needs of hundreds of thousands of people. That's God's way. Jonah only see what directly affects him. That's his way. God saw a whole nation that would come to God, which they do in 245, when a half-hearted preacher gets up and gives a half-hearted message and the whole nation come to God. You see, Jonah, just like First, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, we talked about when you don't have those seven things in your life, which he'd lost, his wig got perverted, 
He's blind. He can't see what God wants him to do. He can't see afar off. He couldn't see Nineveh from God's standpoint if he ever, ever wanted to. And he forgot what God had done for him. He forgot what God called him to do. He's a prophet. Jonah gets out of God's way and then he starts fretting against God. Starts murmuring. He's not happy. I want to die. Why did you bring me out here? I'm dying. The gourd, it's hot. The gourd grows up. God gives him a little shave. Then he's happy. Then the sun dries up the gourd. Then he's not happy. You know, you can tell a lot about somebody It's a Christian by what upsets them. You know that? In every church, you have, you have Elisha's and Jonah. I don't care where you go. I don't care where at in the world. They will complain and get upset about everything. You know, in all my studies in the Bible, I've only found three things that God has a controversy worth. You know that? And those three things are worth studying. But these folks, they got a laundry list. It's too hot. It's too cold. I learned a long time ago that uh, that we had a thermostat when they redid the place they took it out but I had a thermostat back here that wasn't hooked up to anything there was a sign on it that said please set the temperature to your own convenience <laughs> made everybody happy it wasn't hooked up to nothing but just the thought that you were in control of that made you happy they say the service is too long somebody else says well it's too short somebody says well there's nobody friendly somebody says well the paint on the walls I don't like it or the carpet's an ugly color just like Jonah. Somebody didn't show up on a Sunday and work in the nursery, so I had to do their part. Poor baby. Just like Jonah. I'm glad. Now I'm mad. Now I'm glad again. I don't like this, and I don't like that. Hey, listen, dear friend. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, God killed his people for just the very same thing. He said, neither murmur you, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed by the destroyer. That's probably a little too much Bible for you. Now, all of this will go back to one simple contact, not getting your way, or not getting your way perverted from God's way, and then getting an attitude about toward God and the things of God. Now, here's your passage. And I want, to take the, want you to take this with you today. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, 7, 8, and 9. Philippians chapter 4. It's either God's way or it's your way. And your way, you'll, you'll wind up getting subtracted things out and getting divided out. And you'll wind up fretting against the things of the Lord. God's way, you'll just keep adding things to it. You'll continue to grow. He says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, 7, 8, 9, here's what he says. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Now, the child of God ought to be rejoicing in everything. Now, that's hard for us today to rejoice in something that goes sideways or goes bad, that we perceive it as bad. But you know that everything that happens in churches or in your life that looks like it's bad may not always be a bad thing. Guy said, well, I was really ticked because I got a flat tire right before I got to that exit up there where I was going to get off. And I don't know why God gave me the flat tire and it took me 20 minutes to get it changed. And then he gets in his car and he drives up and he sees a tragic accident for five, six car pileup. 
and realizes that he probably would have been in that accident if God wouldn't give him a flat tire. Now, was it a good thing or a bad thing? Oh, you who groaned against God and fretted against God for the flat tire, are you now thanking him for it? Rejoice in the Lord always, and I say rejoice. I've known people that have tragedies in their life that God used that tragedy to bring somebody else in their life so they could tell the story of Christ to. Do you rejoice in that or you fret against the Lord on that? Rejoice in the Lord always, and I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known, be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, there it is. Do you have that peace that keeps your hearts and minds? Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are good, a good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. There's what you're supposed to be thinking on. Now, you fill your mind with those things. You know the first thing he says? Truth. Start filling your mind with truth. And then when you start filling your mind with truth, you're going to be able to have the ability to see what's honest and what's dishonest, and so then you, you put in the things that are honest. Then when you get the truth, you'll be able to see what is just and unjust, and you focus on the things that are just. Then when you get the truth, you'll be able to see what is pure and unpure, and then you focus on the things that are pure. That when you really get the truth, you'll be able to see the things that are lovely and then the things that are not so lovely, and you focus on the things that are lovely. That when you get the truth, that's where it all starts, then you'll be, you know, you be able to understand what things are of a good report and a bad report. You don't get around the bad report stuff. You stay with the good stuff. And then uh, if you get the truth, if there'll be any virtue, if there'll be any praise, these are the things you think on. But it all goes back to the truth. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and a God of peace shall be with you. See? You want to focus on things? You want to establish your way? Think on these things. Get rid of the other things. Think on these things. Put these things in your life. Let these form your thought process. Doing this will always keep you in the Lord's way and keep you from murmuring against the Lord. Because you're, you're thinking on the things that are, that are honest. There's a lot of things in Christianity that are dishonest. There's a lot of things in Christianity that aren't pure. You get to choose which ones you're going to think about. And when you have the truth, the Word of God, then you understand that my mind and your mind is something that we need to keep certain things out of. I saw a picture the other day in a book of the ugliest woman that ever lived. She was, too. I have never seen a woman more ugly in all my life. I'm not sure why you're saying amen, but, <laughs> but, uh, but I don't think I want to know. She was the ugliest woman I ever saw in my life. She was ugly. If there was an ugly tree, she was at the top, and she fell down and hit every branch on the way down. She was ugly. I, I feel sorry for her. I don't know how I would feel. But she lived in the 1800s. She's dead now. Thank God. She's dead. But I want to tell you. That woman was the ugliest woman ever on this planet. You know, you see those things, like the ugliest dog. Now, a dog can be so ugly, it can be cute. Not a woman. <laughs> Nor a man in that case. But when we all think about a woman or a man, 
We don't think about the ugliest person we ever saw in our life. We think about the most beautiful person we ever saw in our life. When you think about life, there's a lot of bad things in our lives we've all had to go through. But you don't think on those things. You, when God changes your heart and changes your life, you think on the good things. We all lived in the world before we got saved. Some in the world after you got saved. But you know what? You do well not to dwell on those things and think about those things, but think all about the lovely things that God has done for you since you got saved. And that's what he's saying. When you do these things, it'll keep you, and think on these things, it'll keep you in the Lord's way. It'll keep you from murmuring and fretting against the Lord. Hey, you know, for you and for me, it's a simple question. We have a variety of, of people here that are in all different stages of spiritual growth. We have an incredible core NCO base here. Incredible. We have people who are leaders and we have people who are leaders of leaders. And it's an incredible base here. But we have some of you who are growing, some of you are struggling, some of you are coming through things in your life trying to try to get where you need to get. Let me ask you a question, a simple question. On a daily, monthly, yearly basis, are you adding more to your faith than you're subtracting? That's the key. Are you coming to church more this year or less than you did last year? Are you in your Bible more this year or are you in your Bible less this year? Are you doing more for the Lord this year or less? What are you adding in your world that is more than what the devil's trying to subtract? And that's really the question. Because everything about your way versus God's way will come down to what you add in your life. Because when you start doing it your way, you're going to enter into the foolishness. The foolishness is going to pervert your way. And the devil is going to come in and subtract and he's going to divide you out. You start going God's way with his wisdom. God's going to add some things to your faith. Then he's going to multiply you. You know, that's such a simple concept, but I've seen that in so many of your lives. I've seen some of you come in three or four or five years ago. Your life was a mess. You had all kinds of problems in your life. And I look at you today. I look at you today because you were willing to add some things to your faith. And then God took what you added in and he multiplied it in your life. And here you are. Somebody says, it's a miracle of God. Well, it is, but it's most miracles you can't figure out. A miracle is, how did it happen? This miracle, you can figure out how it happened. So I'm not sure it's a real bona fide miracle. It's a great thing. But it happened because you were willing to add to your faith and let God take what you added and multiply it, and here you are. Where somebody else that came into church at the same time didn't add anything, started subtracting, and got divided out. There's no great mystery to it. It's either your way or God's way based on whether you add or you subtract. And it's as simple as that. And you know, along with that, you can't just stay neutral. The Christian life is like two escalators. They're always side by side. You ever notice that? One going up, one coming down. There are no escalators. Just stand on it. Don't do anything. It would get you nowhere. When you get on an escalator, you're either going up or you're coming down. There's never an escalator for you just to stand on. You're either going up or you're coming down. Christian life, you're either going up or you're coming down. There's no place for you just to stand. 
And the moment you quit going up, you start coming back down. The moment you quit adding, the devil starts subtracting. You say, well, how do I know where the devil's at? He's the guy standing right behind you with a calculator. And he wants to divide out, he wants to subtract and divide out everything in your life that God's given you. And God wants to keep adding and adding and adding to your faith and then multiplying that and multiplying it tenfold, hundredfold, thousandfold. The devil just wants to take away from you and subtract. He wants to subtract your Bible. He wants to subtract your fellowship. He wants to subtract your Christian friends. He wants to subtract your church. He wants to subtract everything out and have you think in your mind, you're still okay. And of course, keep that 88 colors crayon box, man. Yeah. Color with every color God gave you. Never lose sight of God's way in your life because God's way is the only way.